Welcome to Trending in Education. I'm Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined today by Dr. Robert Sternberg, who's a professor of human development at Cornell and also an honorary professor at Heidelberg University in Germany. He's an established psychologist, someone I've read about for years. So I'm very excited to, to have him on the show. We're going to be talking about intelligence and many of Bob's theories over the years. But before we get to any of that, I need to welcome Bob to the show. So Bob, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you. And thanks so much for having me here. I'm really excited about the opportunity to speak to your audience. Yeah, it's great to have you. And I'm sure they'll be happy to hear this. We always like to begin with our guest's origin story. So maybe an abbreviated version of that at the top. And then we're going to be talking about the way you've thought about intelligence and thought about how we understand how humans adapt and solve problems has evolved throughout your life. So I think we'll come back to a lot of the theoretical stuff, but can we begin with just a little bit of who you are and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I was born in Newark, New Jersey. My parents were uh, high school dropouts for different reasons. So I came from an uneducated family, I would say. My father sold buttons and my mother was a housewife. I decided at a pretty young age I wanted to study intelligence. And the reason was that when I grew up in the 50s, 60s, in my elementary school, they gave IQ tests, group IQ tests every year. Mm -hmm. And when the school psychologist would come in to give us the test, I would freeze, like total freeze job, a piece of ice. And she would say, go and the other students would be going and I would be sitting there looking at the page and I would hear them turning the page and I was still on the first problem. So I was getting nowhere. And that went on for a few years. And the result is I got obviously poor scores on IQ tests. My teachers thought I was stupid. I thought it was stupid. I did stupid work. They were happy. I did stupid work. I was happy. They were happy. So everybody was happy. And I learned in elementary school, what a self-fulfilling prophecy is. That if you think a kid is dumb, mm. uh, they'll often behave in a way to fulfill your expectations. And then everybody thinks that's okay. In fourth grade, I had a teacher, uh, Mrs. Alexa, who thought that there was more to a student than an IQ test score. She expected more of me. And I came to expect more of myself. I also really liked Mrs. Alexa and I had marital plans for us, although <laughs> she was a bit older than I was and already married. And at least at the time, I thought she lived on a houseboat. And I saw the biggest uh, drawback, not that she was married or older, but I didn't think I wanted to live on a houseboat <laughs> because I get seasick. Anyway, so in fourth grade, I turned around and became a good student. And then in sixth grade, I had a really a, a defining experience where they sent me back to fifth grade to take uh, the fifth grade test. I assume because they thought the sixth grade one would be too hard. And when I went back to fifth grade, I felt scared when I was competing with kids of my own age, but fifth graders, wow, I'm going to graduate from elementary school this year. And they're just babies. I remember thinking that they're babies. So I wasn't scared. Uh, I knew I did better. And that helped me get over my test anxiety. And then I think the experience that really solidified my going into the intelligence business happened a year after that when I was in seventh grade at 13. I did a project on the development of mental testing, trying to figure out why I did so poorly on IQ tests. 
And I, part of it was I devised my own IQ test. Part of it was I found the Stanford Binet, a famous IQ test in the library of my uh, hometown. And I gave it to some kids. And there was this girl in whom I was very romantically interested at age 13. And I thought yeah. that maybe, because I was too shy to ask yeah. her I thought maybe if I gave her an IQ test, it would help. It's a uh, pickup. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was an icebreaker. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, I was not only low in cognitive intelligence, <laughs> but social intelligence as well. That did not work. Yeah. Um, although even, you know, now it's many years later and we're still friends. So it, it happened. And uh, But then somehow the head school system psychologist got wind of the fact that I was giving IQ tests to my classmates. Mm. And I was called out of social studies class one day, second period, I still remember it. And he sat me down and bawled me out for 50 minutes, telling me if I ever brought the book into school again that had the test, he personally would burn it. Wow. And it was that point that I decided that if, if it's that big a deal to him, it must yeah. be really interesting. You never do that with kids. You never yeah. tell them like that because it's stay keep work. yeah, stay away from those books. It, it's it's yeah, as though you right. uh, just you discovered the sacred scrolls and yeah, uh they, it, it, book burning makes the book you want to read more of the books. So right, right. So uh, so in seventh, seventh grade, I decided that's what I was going to do. And it was. I graduated from high school in uh, Maplewood, New Jersey. I went to Yale as an undergrad, majored in psychology. Then I went to Stanford, uh, got a PhD in psychology. Then I went to Yale for a number of years as a professor, 30 years. Wow, yeah. Uh, and then I went into administration for almost a decade in various places. And then I came to Cornell, which is where I am today. And I study intelligence creativity wisdom things like that so yeah that's sort of the story that's great that was a great story and you took us back with some vivid imagery of your early years so yeah, thank you for and it was that girl's not mistake not to get interested in me after <laughs> i gave her the IQ test. She, i'm sure she, she regrets it I, was, I imagine she does yeah and then, and then throughout this time and it comes out a little bit in your origin story there as well you have had and we'll get into your triarchic theory probably next but like you've always had a creative mode to how you think about intelligence and you haven't necessarily just accepted what's been given to you as the end all be all. Your thinking about intelligence has evolved in a lot of interesting ways throughout your career. So I thought maybe we could follow that journey. And then you have a new book coming out, which is really the the culmination of, of a lot of this. And, and the book is called Adaptive Intelligence, which just dropped. So folks should uh, track this book down. And a lot of if the ideas are interesting, where should it'll be available through Amazon as well as uh, academic press? Yeah, it's called Adaptive Intelligence, Surviving and Thriving in Times of Uncertainty. It's published by Cambridge University Press. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's available on Amazon or from Cambridge University Press or Barnes & Noble, wherever you want to get it. But I'll tell you that what made me very skeptical of traditional views of intelligence is I told you how when I was a kid, I bombed on these tests. And after I got over my test anxiety, when I was in high school, I took, you know, the SAT and things like that. And I did very well. And there's one question that really stuck in my mind. When I was young, I wondered, I wonder what it's like to be in the head of someone who does really well in these tests. Like they must have these really deep thoughts. And then I ended up doing pretty well when I was in high school. 
And that made me think, wait a minute, one year I get really stinking scores. Another year I get really great scores and I'm the same person. Right. So there's got to be something not right here. If you're the same person doing really poorly and really well, then there must be something that these tests are not measuring, that they're missing. And that's mm-hmm. that was very revealing for me. And I, But I'll, I'll tell you one thing, every time I've written a book, I've thought it's the culmination. One thing that's important to realize is that if you do creative work, you're never really done. Mm -hmm. And one of the sad things about the whole intelligence business, any scientist knows you're never done. Look at medical tests. Look at the medical tests we use today. They're so much more sophisticated than what we would have used 100 years ago. Imagine if we had a COVID epidemic 100 years ago and were clueless as to how to create an exam. The really weird thing about the intelligence business is that we're still doing the same thing as 100 years ago. Binet, Alfred Binet in France, Charles Spearman in England, in the very earliest years of the 20th century came up with these tests. And the tests today are almost the same as the tests that Binet and Spearman came up with. It's like the field somehow went into suspended animation. It's been Mm -hmm. doing the same thing for over a hundred years. And certainly it's time to move forward to say, maybe, just maybe there's something else. And maybe what we did a century ago, it was really good for a century ago, but maybe it's not so good for 2021. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and interestingly, I think you demonstrated that early in your career, you started well before 2021 looking at intelligence in ways that were different from Spearman and Binet. Can we begin there just to give folks a little bit of context around how your work reached a point where people look up intelligence, your name and the triarchic theory is, is going to show up there. You made your mark early and then you weren't done yet. You kept uh, iterating on it from there. But can you maybe introduce us to how your thinking is a little different from uh, your predecessors? The history of it is that originally when I started off in graduate school, I thought that the problem with standard IQ tests is they don't tell you anything about how people think. So for example, in those times on tests like the SAT, they had these very hard vocabulary words and they still have the reading sections, they have hard vocabulary. And they had things like verbal analogies. And what I was thinking is these are supposed to measure what was called at the time scholastic aptitude test. But geez, these measure your opportunities in life. If you haven't had opportunities to learn what these words mean, it might look like you can't think when in fact, if English isn't your first language, or if you grew up in a house that your parents weren't that well-educated and didn't give you opportunities, or if you grew up in another country or culture, you just might not have the opportunity to learn the stuff you need to know, or the math test. This is straight stuff you'll learn in school. So that was my first iteration. And then when I was by mid-80s, really, I had these three students. They applied to the graduate program at Yale. And one of them was really analytically smart. I call her Alice and had great test scores and great grades. And she was the perfect student type. But then when she came into the program, I realized that she was really good analytically, but she wasn't very creative. And what I came to realize is that it wasn't like she was born with uncreative genes. It's that schools just didn't reward her for being creative, Mm -hmm. but they did reward her for being a good test taker. So it wasn't 
her really it was the reward system in the school so much favored good memorizers and good abstract analyzers on esoteric yeah. problems and then i had another student uh, who applied uh, who i call barbara these are not real names and she didn't test well but she was really creative like super creative she'd actually published as an undergraduate and she had these great letters but i was the only person who voted to admit her because she had the low test scores. And what I came to realize is that there are many creative people who are, if you're a really creative person, taking a multiple choice test isn't for you. That's not gonna work. But she ended up, she got rejected the first time. And then I hired her as a research associate. She did great as a research associate. She eventually got in. But I realized that people are very creative who don't show what they can do on standardized tests. They don't have a prayer in our system. In some colleges, if you don't have the test scores, yeah. and if you're not doing exactly what you're told in school, so you don't have a high GPA, mm -hmm. you can't get into the colleges. And here was someone who's really creative and no one wanted, would give her a chance. Uh, and the third student who really impressed me, who I call Celia, was somebody whose test scores weren't so great. And she didn't appear to be super creative, but when she applied for jobs, she got every single job she applied for. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, I didn't know her work was that great. And what I realized is that she was good in a way. In other words, she's practically smart. Yeah. She could go into a job interview. That's like what everyone wants to be. Go into a job interview, figure out what they want to hear and give it to them. So I wish I were that way. And so what I realized is that there's more to intelligence than... IQ or SATs or ACTs or GREs, that sure there's this abstract analytical component, but there's also a creative component. There's a practical component. And then later I realized uh, that there's another one and that's uh, a wisdom-based component mm. that you're not just selfishly using your abilities to further yourself. We have so many people who are smart and it's all about them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're in a really narcissistic age and wisdom is about using your knowledge and your abilities for a common good to help other people and not just you and your friends or yeah. the who vote for you or the people who buy your products. It's mm -hmm. going beyond self-interest. And so that led to what I call the theory of successful intelligence. In my latest work on adaptive intelligence, the basic idea is very simple. And that is that how can you call yourself smart, even if you have a sky-high IQ or sky-high ACTs or SATs, if what you're doing is destroying the world, not only for yourself, but for your kids and your grandkids and beyond. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the sometimes idiotic ways in which we've handled things like climate change, mm -hmm. the pandemic, like we've been warned about a pandemic for years. If we have leaders who Bill Gates was warning about it, virologists were warning about it, yeah. and, and it fell on deaf ears. So what do you mean by smart? Do you mean by smart that you knew the meaning of the word? Perspicacious? Yeah, perspicacious or 
Adam Brain, or do you mean by smart that you're not doing things that will result in hundreds of thousands or millions of deaths and people right. getting sick or brain fog for the rest of your life? Are we really in such a bad way that we would rather you know what exacerbate means than that you would save hundreds of thousands or millions of lives? Is, yeah. is that what we're reduced to because some guy at the beginning of the 20th century made up an IQ test with school-like problems. Yeah. And that's where I think we've gone horribly wrong. We've created a societal system that funnels people. The funnel gets narrow and narrower, not on the basis of can they solve the conflicts they have with other people? Can they solve real problems? Can they deal with the fact that they're not creating a world that's going to be suitable for their kids. And instead, we're doing it on the basis of whether they know what obscure words mean right. or whether they can do math problems that they never once will encounter in their life after they get out of high school. Yeah. What's wrong with us? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I could start. I'll, I'll start thinking now. But but that was compelling. And it's a extremely relevant argument in these challenging times where I think a lot of people are questioning what's the value that we get out of education, how much of it is learning how to take these standardized tests versus some other less tangible uh, things like building relationships, learning how to solve problems, learning how to act creatively, and then aligning these things to higher level objectives. It does feel as though, at least right now, while we're still in the thick of this in early 2021, like this may be a, a bit of an inflection point in how we think about education. So I imagine it's an interesting time for you to be releasing this book about intelligence, which as I'm understanding, it has a lot of implications on how we should think about education. I think that what's really uh, sad is that it, at a time when people have been so worried about COVID-19, some parents and their kids in colleges were desperately worried about cancellations of mm -hmm. sessions to take standardized tests, which shows how there's a risk that society is missing the point. It's kind of nature telling us to wake up that what we need are leaders, not just political leaders, but leaders in business, leaders in science, leaders in the humanities, leaders in the arts, who recognize that we're being destructive with regard to the world, that we have bigger problems than the meanings of obscure words or how to solve trigonometry problems. Right. Uh, we have problems that we really have to deal with now and that are going to compromise the lives of our kids in the future. Look at what's happening right now as I'm doing this interview, Texas, Texas yes. came apparently within seconds or minutes of losing their power grid. They did lose their power. This is Texas. We're not talking about North Dakota here. And, and we're thinking education is about what the word exacerbate means. We need to say that intelligence always was defined, even by Binet and Wexler, the earliest intelligence testers, as what the title of my book is. It's about adaptation. Mm -hmm. It's about what you make out of your life. And my theory of intelligence is not your IQ. It's what you make out of your life. You set goals. 
you ask yourself how I can achieve those goals. You work toward the goals. You find that some of them work, some of them don't. You change your goals. You change your strategy. You have some failures. Yeah. Often you have catastrophes. And so much of life is how you can deal with utter catastrophes in your life and the lives of others. That's what intelligence is about. Mm -hmm. It's uh, when you just feel like you're on your breaking point, can you keep going? Can you find a way? I mean, the COVID-19 times have been so hard on so many people. That's what intelligence is about. Can you find a way to make your life work when there are utter challenges you thought you can never confront before? Mm -hmm. So that's what we ought to be teaching. And what I found in my own research is I actually looked at textbooks, basal readers, the readers they use for young kids. At the beginning of the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st century. And what I found is that reading about things like wisdom and character and solving life problems, that steeply declined and more and more of the content was about academic kinds of stuff. Yeah. And so what's happened is the tail is wagging the dog. Instead of focusing on life skills that you'll need for your job, to get a job, to keep the job, to deal with the fact that you lost your job and now have to find another one or have to find a way. Instead of focusing on those skills, we're focusing on more and more esoteric kinds of academic skills. And then we build a pyramid in society around these test scores and ice out kids who might be tremendously creative, yep. who might be wise. The kinds of people I admire are someone like Greta Thunberg, whether you agree with her or not in her kind of radical environmentalist. She's someone who found something to stand for. And figure it out, how can I get people to pay attention and to make a change? Yeah. And so you don't always have to agree with everyone about their cause, but there are people who find not just any cause, but a pro-social cause. Yeah. A cause that's based on science, that's based on facts, that's based on logic. And the fact that today so many people are falling victims to baseless conspiracy theories, the most insane, yeah. fact-free confabulation stories based on nothing shows that you can have all these SATs and ACTs and IQ tests. That's not what life is about. It's that when someone keeps repeating something to you that's ridiculous, you, you don't fall for it. You say, this is ridiculous and I'm not going to believe it. And moreover, I realize that I've got to live in, in the world as it is. Think of how much crap there's been about COVID-19. How many people aren't wearing masks because of utter lies right. about it's actually good not to wear a mask. And meanwhile, they breathe on people and they get them sick or they die. If you shoot someone, that's not so good. If you're sick and you breathe on them, that's not so good either. So what schooling needs to do is develop adaptive intelligence that you have a responsibility to yourself Mm -hmm. And you have a responsibility to other people to make the world a better place. That's it. Mm -hmm. That we should be teaching kids how can they make a positive, meaningful, and hopefully enduring difference to the world. Not just uh, sit down and listen to baseless conspiracy crap that has no basis in fact. Yeah. Yeah. It's striking. It, it sounds intuitive. It makes a lot of sense. But it's striking when you start to think about 
how profoundly what you're talking about might change the way our systems operate. There's so much built around the testing and even this concept of learning loss, which you hear people talk about a lot now, where, oh my God, in, in light of COVID, our fourth graders are going to be, or in your example, our sixth grader is going to be operating at a fifth grade level as though the wheels of industry will suddenly fall off. When in reality, those same kids are going through tremendous trauma. They're trying to figure out how to navigate their lives, let alone sitting for these tests. I think to break us out of that old school thinking, we almost needed this, this kind of meteor strike of this pandemic. What are your thoughts? It sounds like that you're a little bit hopeful with the Greta Thunbergs of the world. Maybe the rising generation has a little bit of hope, but I'm concerned that we may not be able to pivot our educational systems quickly enough to, to affect the change uh, that you're pushing for. I'm also concerned that we're not going to pivot because we even on the positive side, hopefully some schools are being forced <laughs> to make testing optional or not yes. to use it. Mm -hmm. But the problem was never having tests. That isn't exactly the problem. The test measures something. I'm not anti-test. They yeah. do measure your knowledge base and your analytical skills. They have some predictive power. The problem is they're too narrow. What's more important, abstract analytical skills or being creative in the face of a world that every day changes? There's some people who they see that the pandemic is here but they're so lacking in creativity, they just can't, they can't believe that the world has changed. Yeah. So they deny that there's a pandemic or they deny kids are being shot in schools or they deny that the weather is changing in crazy ways so that now Texas uh, has uh, homes where they're freezing icicles inside yes. the homes, mm -hmm. like from the fan, and they're worried about their geometry test. So I think that there's an opportunity here. And the question is whether we're gonna take that opportunity. And so I do testing in my own work, in my own research at Cornell. But if you wanna give a test, give kids a problem. Like one of the problems we use is there are two states or it could be two nations that share a common river. This is actually true in the United States with the Mississippi River. And a state that gets water before the other state feels that the other state's stealing the water from them. And now they're engaged in a really vicious dispute about water rights. How can those two states reach some kind of compromise? So give them a problem like that, or give them a problem about how do you decide uh, what priorities to, to use for vaccination right. when there's the pandemic and you can't vaccinate everyone at once. Mm -hmm. In other words, ask them to think about problems that are real. I just published an article where I point out how different test problems are in school from real world problems. Real world problems are not multiple choice. Mm -hmm. No one tells you exactly what the problem is. Real world problems are emotionally fraught. Mm -hmm. They have serious consequences. They're what's called ill-structured. It's not clear how to get to the end. I go over 20 differences between mm. standardized test problems and real-world problems. Is it any surprise that performance on standardized tests doesn't predict real-world problem solving? The problems have nothing to do with the kinds of problems we encounter in our lives. Would you use an SAT score to predict who is going to be able to dissolve a dispute with their spouse or with their kids? Mm. No, right. it, it doesn't work. 
So I'm not saying the tests are worthless. I'm saying they're hopelessly narrow. If you want to test and if you want to teach, teach to the kinds of problems we really have in the world that you have every day in your life, every single day, especially when you're dealing with a pandemic where you're not well prepared for what life has become. Yeah. Yeah. And and the related point, I think, was in some ways it's a challenge to educators and instructional designers and uh, folks who care about the future of learning to dial up their game to a certain extent, because it does sound like we're going to need more creative, relevant, problem-based lessons plans, and we're going to need to have a much broader understanding of how we assess students. Yes, I think that part of the problem, and I discuss this a lot in adaptive intelligence, is we're hooked on problems where there's a right answer and all the other answers are wrong, because mm-hmm. that comes across as objective. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with that is that there's almost no problem you ever encounter in your life where someone says, okay, here's exactly the problem. Here's all the information you need to solve it. The answer choices are A, B, C, D, and E. And Mm -hmm. one of these is correct and the others are totally wrong. Right. And that may be convenient and easy for a computer to score. Well, that's nice, but that's not the way life is. And if you're teaching people that there's one answer that's correct and all the others are wrong, what are you teaching them? You're teaching them uh, to be prepared for an authoritarian government, not for a democracy. An authoritarian government where someone says to you, this is what's right and everything else is wrong. Rather than recognizing that life is full of shades of gray, it has its rights and wrongs, but there's no one to tell you what they are. Yeah. So we need to prepare kids for the future they'll actually encounter, which is to say we need for them to be adaptively intelligent and also to recognize that the world isn't the way you want, but change it. Say, what can I do to make the world a better place? Mm -hmm. And testing is so not about that. Testing is so about guessing the game, whether it's Princeton, New Jersey, or Iowa City, or wherever it is, guessing what's their game, what can you do creatively and make work in a practical way that takes into account not only your own needs, but other people's needs. What we end up with is people who are very clever for themselves. Right. If we look at our leaders, we have a lot of them who went to Ivy League schools and have prestigious degrees, mm-hmm. and they're just total sellouts. Yeah. It's me. It's what do I need to do to get votes to be reelected? Mm-hmm. Uh, or how can I improve my financial status? It's about power. It's about money. It's about reelection. Those aren't the people we want running countries, running businesses, running scientific enterprises, running nonprofits. Yeah. We people who look beyond self-interest to what can I do for the common good? What can I actually do to make the world better? Yeah. And we're not it, or at least we're not getting enough of it. Yeah. And then starting to look ahead then to you're talking about the future of work. Uh, just a, a quick point too on education. Frequently we're teaching not only that there's one right answer, but also that there's only one correct way to get to the right answer. And we're discouraging people from thinking about different ways to solve problems I was thinking as you were talking, it sounds like there's going to be an increased need to teach creativity and to help people unlock the divergence and lateral thinking that will be necessary to come up with novel solutions. I know you've studied creativity about as much as anyone, so I'd love to get your perspective on this. The main thing 
for your listeners is that creativity is something you're born with. Creativity is basically something you decide for. It's an attitude toward life. The way you become creative is not through genes or anything. It's through questioning. It's Sometimes it's through defiance. It's that just because everyone believes something in my social group or in my church or in my political group or in my club doesn't mean it's true. You're willing to question what other people believe. And not only that, you're willing to question what you believe that you're willing to question yourself and say, maybe I've believed this for a long time, but maybe it's not right for me anymore. Maybe it never was for me. Creativity is an attitude toward life. It's a questioning attitude and saying, is there a better way to do things? That's not about your genetic uh, abilities or about your grades in school or your SAT scores. It's an attitude toward a life of questioning and looking for better ways to do. If schools want to teach for creativity, let kids be themselves. And what you said in the beginning, our kids in school this year, because of COVID, they're being homeschooled. But I remember they're taking math tests and half their grade was getting the correct answer, but half their grade was, it's not just showing their work, but whether the work was done the way they were supposed to solve the problem. And if they got the right answer, but a different way from the way the school had in mind or the teacher had in mind, they lost credit, even though their own way got them to the right answer. And that that's not about any one school. That's about the way our society has come to be structured. Yes. And so you can see why there's such a risk here in all around the world, risk to democracy, authoritarianism, yep. that basically a lot of what test measure is whether you do what you're told and you do it the way you're supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's not what democracy is really about. That's what an authoritarian system is about. Sure, sometimes you need to follow directions. Sometimes you need to do what you're told. When you do your taxes, yeah. you have to do the way they're supposed to be done. But in so much of life, you have to say, I know we can do better than we're doing. How are we going to do that in a way that's creative, mm -hmm. that's practical, that actually can get done, that you can implement it? How can I persuade other people that mm -hmm. this is a good way to do things? That's the practical part of intelligence. And how can I make sure it's not just about myself. It's not just about making more money or getting a bigger house or getting reelected or having more power. It's about making the world better. Yeah. Some, uh, some profound stuff here, Bob, and we're getting closer to time. So as we're uh, rounding the, the turn here, heading into the home stretch, we, uh, we always love to get our guests thinking about the future. You don't necessarily have to make predictions, but do you have any sense of where you see the world of learning going, the world of education going. Hopefully we come out of this immediate crisis and then we're still going to have a lot of work on our hands around climate change and a lot of the other things you've, you've been talking about. What do you see on the horizon for us around learning and say the next five, 10 years? When you were talking, I just thought of the Robert Frost poem on the road not taken. Mm. Uh, and in that poem, uh, a guy's walking along a road and he realizes that the roads diverge and he can either take the easy road, which he's always been on, or he can take a more challenging, but also more rewarding road. Mm -hmm. Now, what I realized while you were talking is that the poem for 2021 needs to be changed. You're walking along the road and all of a sudden it's strewn with obstacles and 
problems. And there's another road you could take that also has challenges, but they're challenges that lead to the future. Mm. So it's no longer the easy road versus the hard road. It's the road that was easy, but that is now full of obstacles and problems or saying this road isn't working anymore. It's time for us to change. And it's time for us to say, look, that other road also has challenges, but they're the ones that are going to lead to the future. They're the ones that are going to say, we need to develop creativity and that creativity is not some inborn ability. It's simply deciding that, yes, it's okay to ask if there's a better way to do things. It's about developing common sense. How much common sense do we see anymore? I'm constantly reading about bigotry and violence, just being your life in a way that makes any sense and and a road that leads to wisdom, which is seeking some kind of balance in your life and saying, it's not just about me. It's what can I do? Sure for myself, but for not, and not only just for other people today, but for the future. Mm. And I'm hoping that, in the Frostian sense, we'll take the road not taken because the road we're on now isn't even an easy road anymore. Mm. And the question is, do we have the courage? I think a lot of it today is just about straightforward courage to change our path and say, this clearly isn't working. When you look at what's happening to our climate, when you look at the incredible income disparities in this country and other countries, where there are people living on the streets and people who don't know what to do with their billions of dollars, when there are viruses that are mutating at a very rapid rate, we got to change. And we got to think not in terms of what's your IQ or your SAT score, or your ACT score, but are you adaptively intelligent? Can you make things work in a world that is changing in ways that we really can't predict? That's where we need to go. Yeah. Bob Sternberg, thank you so much for for appearing on the show. Thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. Awesome. The book is Adaptive Intelligence, uh, Dr. Robert Sternberg out of uh, Cornell. If you want to learn about intelligence, creativity, wisdom, you name it, look into what he's uh, put together over uh, a really impressive run here and be on lookout for more to come because it sounds like we're all a work in progress and we're continuing to get better. Hopefully we're getting better on this show too. This is Trending in Education. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, subscribe, spread the word. We'll be back again soon. 